Luke chapter 21. I'm going to begin reading at verse 12. Hear the word. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves For I will give you utterance and wisdom, which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. But you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And they will put some of you to death and you will be hated by all because of my name. Yet not a hair of your head will perish by your endurance. You will gain Your lives. Amen. Now, for those of you who are joining us today, we last week were looking at this stunning prophecy of the Lord Jesus while the disciples and Jesus Christ were at the temple. You remember that the temple was the center of all piety and worship for the Jews, and they were gathered there for the sacrifices and for the offerings that were being given, they were watching the rich uh, put in their offerings, and then they saw the poor widow put in her two mites, and they commented on that, and Jesus noted that the widow put in more than them all uh, as she gave out of her poverty. And then the disciples begin to cast their eyes about, as one would, as you're from Galilee, uh, and you look at the marvels of the big city, and you at the wonders of the temple and its ornate structure and design, and they begin to comment on its physical beauty. And Jesus gives us that amazing prophecy that it's going to be destroyed. Everything they see uh, within a generation is going to be gone, ruined. It'll be even worse than it was in the days of Nebuchadnezzar when Nebuchadnezzar came and sacked the city and brought down the walls and burnt the temple and took the people into captivity. It'd be, it, it will be worse than that, Jesus says. Now, we don't know because the, the, the gospel writers don't give us great details. But you get a hint as you look at Luke and as you look at the companion section in Matthew 24, the disciples are taken aback by this. And you get the sense they don't know what to say. Because Matthew tells us it's not until they get out uh, over the river Kidron and, the, and they get over towards the garden that they, they begin to ask Jesus, wait a minute, Lord, when are these things going to happen? And what's the sign of all this? They ask two different questions here. And last week, you'll remember that Jesus gave two specific answers kind of as an introduction to this subject. And you'll remember they were two things. Number one, Jesus told his disciples as they were asking these questions, when is this going to happen and what's the sign of it? He said, watch your theology. Number one, watch your theology. Don't lose your theological head. He said, because there are going to be a lot of people creating a lot of theological chaos after I'm gone between now and then. 
And they're even going to claim, some of them, that I'm the Messiah. That They're going to say, follow me, I'm the Messiah, boys and girls. They're going to say that they are who Jesus really is. And you better know who Jesus really is so that when other people come and say they are a Messiah or a Messiah-like figure, you'll say, oh, wait a minute, no, you're not. Jesus told me about people like you. And he said, watch your theology. Don't go running after them. Don't follow the false teachers. Sometimes in days of stress, our theology gets tested. And people who are not well grounded theologically can go astray in times of stress. Number two, he said this, watch your anxiety level. Basically, to put it in the colloquial of today, don't panic. Don't panic. Because there's going to be between now and that day of the destruction of Jerusalem, between now and then, there's going to be the usual headlines in the news. The world's going to continue like it always does. And there's going to be these breaking news updates of wars and rumors of wars and uprisings and coup d'etats and famines and natural disasters and climate change and all the rest. He said, don't panic. That's not... The end. Now, he is going to tell us, and we're going to study this more in detail next week, what will and should get the attention of his disciples. But here, Jesus then, after reminding them, watch your theology, watch your anxiety level, Jesus gives the disciples two things they do need to keep in mind before the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. The first comes in the section we're looking at today, and the second comes in what we'll look at next week. And what are those two things? In verses 12 to 19, Jesus says they need to keep this in mind first. The early church and the followers of Jesus must suffer persecution. Before the destruction of Jerusalem, before the destruction of the temple that Jesus has just spoken of, the disciples need to realize that there are going to be days of persecution for them. The second thing that we'll look at, God willing, next week from verse 20 to 24 is this, that the early church not only must suffer persecution, but the early church will need to recognize one important sign. And that is they will see a great army of Gentiles coming towards Jerusalem. And when the Gentiles come in mass and in great number, They need to drop what they're doing and, as we say from the scriptures, run for the hills. There will be a time that will be of great significance, and that, of course, will be the Roman army. He doesn't specify necessarily that they're Romans. He calls them Gentiles. But who was the great power among the Gentiles in that day? It is and was the Romans. So essentially, Jesus is saying, when you see the Roman army coming, in their tens, hundreds of thousands. If you're in the field, stop what you're doing. Don't go in your house. Don't try and gather your things. Don't try and load up the Mayflower truck. You just get out of there. And pray it doesn't happen in the wintertime. And woe to you guys who are pregnant in those days. Because they're going to be great days of distress. Now, we're going to talk about that second part more next week. But let's talk today about this first part in verse 12 to 19. The early church 
is going to experience persecution. Now, I'm going to preach this from the perspective of that Jesus is speaking to an original audience and we are getting to listen in on what Jesus is speaking to his disciples right before his face. And then I also, though, want to look at how Jesus teaches them and make the applications for our own day as well. All right. So let me break this down into three parts as we consider what Jesus says regarding the early church has to suffer persecution. Jesus, I would argue, does this in three ways. Number one, from verse 12, and then also from verse 16 and 17, Jesus says, regarding persecution, that the early church will be persecuted. That He's going to teach that as a fact, okay? And we're going to look at the, the reality of, the, of persecution. That's number one. The early church will be persecuted. They will not escape the sufferings and the humiliation of Christ. Their union with Christ will bring about suffering. If they persecuted the master, they will persecute the disciples. That's number one. Number two, the early church will witness to the world during those persecutions. Jesus says something else of great importance will happen, and that is you will be my witness in that time. And then number three, and that's, uh, excuse me, that's from verses 13 to 15. And then the third point regarding persecution, verses 18 and 19, that those in the church who persevere through those persecutions will enter into eternal life. Those who continue under the stresses and duresses of persecution, faithful to Jesus Christ, will have a great reward in glory. And that's in verses 18 and 19. So let me take those three parts and bring... Uh, them before us today. Number one, let's go back. The early church will be persecuted. Now, if you have your Bible with you, let's look at this from the scriptures first. Look at verse 12, please, uh, with me. But before all these things, now what are, let's just stop right there. What are all these things? He's talking about the, the wars and the rumors of wars and the famines and the plagues. So, you know, the CNN headlines, all that's going to go on. And, and before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. Note here that the early church is going to be arrested. They're going to be arrested by their fellow Jews. They're going to be arrested by Gentiles. They are going to experience this even to the point of being brought before civil magistrates. And then if you look down also at verse 16 and 17 with me, please. But you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. They will put some of you to death and you will be hated by all because of my name. Now, I think all three of those verses speak to the reality that they will be persecuted. Fellow Jews in the synagogues will become irate. As Christ is preached from the Old Testament, Gentile idolaters will become angry that their gods in whom they trust are really no gods at all. They are just statues in big temples. And they, out of their anger and out of their jealousy, as the church grows and grows, they will begin to persecute the church. They will persecute and arrest early believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the church is going to experience what Paul says in Philippians, both realities, the humiliation of Jesus and the exaltation of Christ. 
They experience the exaltation of Christ as the spirit of God is poured out in abundance upon them with extraordinary signs and wonders, even cloven tongues of fire resting on their heads, speaking in other tongues, other languages that people could understand and hear and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. But lest we be tempted to think that this church is going to enter into this period of mere triumphalism. Jesus also makes it absolutely clear that they will suffer deeply. While they ex- enjoy the extraordinary blessings of heaven being poured out upon them individually and as families and as a church, they're also going to suffer terribly. They're also going to endure many hardships for the name and the love of Jesus who loved them first and gave himself for them. And they will be seized and they will be brought before the magistrates. And Jesus is making the case plainly. I don't want you guys to be unaware of what your future holds. Most painful of all, no doubt, for these early Christians is that even close family members and friends would turn against them. Satan would stir up even those who should. By nature and by blood have the closest of ties Jesus has promised that he would bring a sword and that two would be against three and three against two. And that mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and brother against brother would come to pass. The early church had to learn experientially that they were disciples of Jesus and if they hated Jesus, they were going to be hated as well. The son of man would be betrayed by Judas here shortly. When Jesus is speaking these words, he's within days of being betrayed by one of his closest allies in his inner circle. The man with whom he dipped the bread and had fellowship. The man that, as the, to use the words of the psalmist, he could say that we went unto the house of the Lord together. This man would lift up his heel. Judas would lift up his heel against the Lord Jesus Christ. And the disciples were going to experience something similar to what Jesus experienced. Those who broke bread together in the home or in the neighborhood. Or even in the church, in the synagogue. Would be the very people that will bring accusations against them. They'll be the very people who will have them arrested and call for their persecution. Persecution often has been. One of the marks of the church, uh, though it's theologically never been defined as one of the defining marks, but nevertheless, the true church over the centuries has always been a people that has suffered persecution, even since the days of Abel, when Cain rose up over a theological matter and slew his brother. It was a matter of worship. What offering do you bring to God? And why is this? Why? Why is the church always persecuted, boys and girls? Well, because God tells us in the book of Genesis that there's a war going on between two parties. One party is the seed of the serpent, the seed of the devil. All those who are fallen in the first Adam and remain in the rebellion against God. They are bound to Satan as their master. And we all by nature are bound to him. But by the grace of God, God delivers many from the tyranny of Satan. And they are called the seed of the woman because that seed of the woman is Jesus himself. And when you come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are delivered from out of the bondage of sin and Satan. And you're brought into the wondrous family of God through Jesus Christ. 
But the problem arises is that when you leave one camp for the other, the first camp puts its mark on you. They put a bead on you. And the devil shoots his fiery darts at you. He's like a lion that's seeking to devour the unsuspecting Impala who's not paying attention as the herd goes across. Satan is seeking to stir up. I think Satan seeks to do two things we see in the scriptures. And I think that strategy continues today. Number one, he seeks to destroy the church from within by way of theology and practice, undermining it within. And then he seeks to attack it from without. He seeks to undermine its purity and its unity within. And then he seeks also to destroy it through persecution on the outside. We see it in the book of Genesis, but also as you get to the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation, what do we see? We see the Apostle John speaks of the dragon. And what is the dragon trying to do? He's trying to devour the child. He's trying to devour the Christ child that is born of the woman. And he can't. The child is rescued from Satan's grasp. And so Satan, in his fury, what does he do? He turns to persecute the woman and the offspring of the woman, those who keep the commandments of God. He goes after the church. He can't get at Jesus. Jesus is at right God's right hand. So what does he do? He goes after you. He goes after the church. And we see this throughout the whole of the scriptures. Satan has always been trying to destroy the church of God, the church of God in the Old Testament, and the church of God in the New Testament. We see it where, for example, that evil man, Haman, calls for the extermination of the Jews in the book of Esther. We see it when Saul seeks to destroy David, even though David had always done Saul good. We see it when Jezebel seeks to kill all the prophets of God and Those prophets have to be hidden in caves and given bread and water. We see it when the citizens of Sodom attack the house of Lot. Pharaoh orders the destruction of the Jewish baby boys. Herod would do the same in the environs of Bethlehem years later. We see a man called Saul holding the coats while stoning Stephen, holding the coats for those who were stoning Stephen, who was preaching Christ. Saul would go on to put men and women in prison. Paul, Saul would be converted. The apostle Paul would go out preaching the gospel. But Jesus would say, oh, this man is going to have to learn himself all the sufferings of Christ in his own body. And so we see when Paul gets to Lystra, what happens? He's stoned by the men of Iconium and Antioch coming and stirring up the crowds in Lystra. Even though a wonderful miracle through the hands of Paul was done in the name of Jesus at Lystra. And the people are amazed. And then they turn around. What happens? They're stirred up. And they stone Paul and drag him through the city, thinking him dead. The Jews in Jerusalem have Paul arrested at the outskirts of the temple. And they seek to assassinate him. Some men even putting themselves under a vow that they will not eat bread until they have killed him. Revelation chapter 2 Verse 12 and following tells us that the church at Pergamum suffered the loss of a man named Antipas who was killed where we are told Satan dwells. You look at church history, early Christians persecuted by Rome, the Waldensians persecuted mercilessly. Huss, Wycliffe, Tyndale, Patrick Hamilton, George Wishart, the Covenanters, the Puritans, we could go on. Persecutions endured today in China, North Korea, the Middle East, Nigeria. We need to pray for reformation and revival. 
because we're beginning to see signs of persecution in our own country, even in our own state. The Atlanta Fire Department chief fired by the mayor for a book he wrote upholding biblical marriage. Bakers refusing to participate in homosexual weddings being sued and brought into the court because, as one minister said, they won't put two dudes on the top of the cake. Who's the bigot? Bigots there. They're not saying they're not willing to make cakes for homosexuals. They're saying we are not willing to participate in this uh, sinful ceremony where vows are exchanged between two men or two women. There are grumblings and rumblings among some politicians of removing church tax exemptions. Colleges and universities in our land are now removing previously held recognized religious campus groups because they will not conform to the sexual ethic of our day because they refuse to allow practicing homosexuals in the leadership of their Bible studies. They're not saying the homosexuals can't come to the Bible study. They're just saying they can't be the leaders of the group. And some universities, this is intolerable. And now they're saying you can no longer be a recognized group on our campus. And so you need to leave. We're seeing church shootings. You know, Peter tells us, don't think it's strange or unusual if there is persecution. Paul says the same essentially in Ephesians when he tells us to put on the whole armor of God. Now, why do you tell somebody to put on armor? You don't tell somebody to put on their armor because they're going to a Mediterranean spa to lounge in the sun uh, by the sea. You tell them to put on their armor because you're going into battle. Because there is a war taking place, a spiritual warfare. It's not a war of missiles and tanks and guns. It's a war against the flesh, the world and the devil. We're seeking to take captive a world that doesn't want to surrender to God. What's our mission? Our mission is to make them surrender to God through the preaching of the gospel, by loving them, by denying ourselves, by taking up our cross and following after Jesus. We preach Christ and him crucified and we tell them that their gods are no gods and they must surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ or suffer the eternal consequences. That's our mission. And the thing is, that it's not like we have a ready audience usually. The world does not want to... Hear that because they're already biased against it. Theologically, they're dead in their sins. And unless God moves, sometimes that same message that brings life and joy to so many also brings great anger to others. And they're irritated. And if they have the opportunity, they will persecute the church. You realize there are people in this country who want to persecute you. They just can't right now. Wake up if you don't think that. There, there are people who want you in jail. They see you as a, an opponent to their, their, their atheistic vision for America and for the West. They just don't have the ability to get at you yet. God's gracious hand is protecting you. And, and so don't take this Sunday for granted that we're meeting here with all these civil liberties. We, we don't know what a day may bring. I'm getting ahead of myself in my notes here, but. One famous Baptist minister said, when God gives you light, follow the light, your notes will be there next Sunday. 
But you look at you look at what happened in post-war war World War One Germany and how quickly things deteriorated in Germany, where the, the Nazi socialists began to persecute the church. You know, we hear a lot about the persecution of the Jews, and it was awful. But they, you, you don't hear often as much too that the evangelical church was being persecuted by the Nazis as well. The, the Nazis were opposed to the gospel. Hitler hated the idea of, of, of a Jewish Messiah. And, and he thought it was, a, it, was a, it was a sign of weakness. The cross was uh, an anathema to them because it was a sign of humiliation, a sign of weakness. No, they, they, they preached Arianism. They preached strength. They preached that glory, blood. This idea of glorifying God by dying to self, by taking your cross and following a a Jew was terrible to their thinking. There there are people who have similar views in this world, in this country, even today. So please uh, pray for your culture. Pray for the civil magistrates. You know, I'm reading a biography on Winston Churchill I'm reading volume two of The Last Lion by William Manchester. And, uh, you know, the world was weary of war, didn't want anything to do with war. World War One was terrible. It was devastating. It just ruined, uh, in many ways, England. Uh, there's a book, another book about all the widows that are not just widows, but women who never got to marry uh, because there were so many. There was a million dead Englishmen. And, and the last thing they wanted was another war. But terrible things were happening on the horizon. And, and they just didn't want to, they, they wanted to stick their heads in the sand and, and, and pretend. And, and we can't be like that. We need to be like the men of Issachar who understand the times. And they have the wisdom and the knowledge to know what to do. They see the problems and they know the root of the problem. You know, this means also we need to be speaking out as a church for the rights of others. The, the Westminster Standards tell us in the Ninth Commandment that silence in a good cause is sin. The sin of omission. Not speaking out for the oppressed, for the poor, for the downtrodden, for those who are being persecuted. It's a sin for us to remain silent. We need to be aware of creeping tyranny wherever it raises its ugly head. This is not to say that God won't use it. And that's my second point here. The early church will also witness to the world via persecution. God, in his wisdom and in his providence, will allow his bride to be molested by evildoers. Terrible and unspeakable things will happen to his church but Jesus says here in verse 13 to 15, but the God, knowing what he's doing, has a plan. He says in verse 13 to his disciples, his original audience, it will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. When people treat the church badly, rudely, when they arrest then they, and they, they abuse physically, they torture, they even kill It is an opportunity to glorify Jesus. As Paul would say, 
In Romans 8, we are as sheep to be slaughtered. But in that slaughter of us, we are more than conquerors. You kill us. You shed our blood. You put us in prison. You, you bind us from being able to speak publicly. And yet, God in his economy uses the awfulness of it all to glorify himself. Haven't we seen that when Pastor Zacharias, well, the Asus came last October? You remember boys and girls, Pastor Zeki? And he was arrested and put in prison in Eritrea by the Eritrean government. And what happened? Well, the Eritrean prison became his new church, didn't it? He didn't stop preaching. He just changed congregations for a season. And they complained that about his preaching. I was listening to the testimony of two women native to Iran that live now in Atlanta. Miriam Rostampour and Marzia Amarazadia. I don't know if I pronounce them, their names properly, but these two women, Marzia and Miriam, uh, tell a story. They, they, are, they are brought to Christ in Iran and they decide, the two of them, that they will uh, smuggle uh, New Testaments and distribute. They have a map of Tehran and they will distribute Bibles into the mailboxes all over Tehran. In fact, at the time, the government thought that there was some church, large church that was doing this. And they were trying to find the church. They didn't realize it was two teenage girls with backpacks full of Bibles. Well, the long story short, they eventually are caught and arrested. The same thing. They begin to preach Christ in the prison. And the revolutionary guards say, you need to stop. What are you doing? You're preaching. And they said, well, you put us here. You know, you, you were the one you can you can end this right now by, you know, letting us go. Uh, that oftentimes it has been said that it's possible that the largest church in North Korea is in a concentration camp. Philippians chapter one, verse 12 and 13, Paul says this. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances Meaning his arrest. My circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Think about that for a minute. This is the Apostle Paul off the chain. Wandering all over the Mediterranean. And yet Paul says, hey, you know, actually my arrest has not only helped the cause, it's, it's improved it. He says, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. All these guys in the military. There's revival taking place in the Roman army. Acts chapter 8, verse 1 and 4. Luke tells us on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. And then down in verse four, he says, therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Everybody was in Jerusalem. Everything was taking place in Jerusalem and all their signs and wonders. And it's, you know, it's like going to camp and you're like, man, I don't ever want to go back. You know, I want to I want to stay at this Christian camp my whole life <laughs> because it's so wonderful here. And God says, no, you know, you, at some point you have to leave the Mount of Transfiguration. You need to go out. The salt needs to get out of the salt shaker. And so God providentially brings it about in the persecution 
of the church in Jerusalem and they are scattered. And as they scatter, then they're doing what they were told to do in the beginning, preaching the gospel to the whole world. It was used for good. We prayed this morning for Pastor Wang Yi at Early Rain Covenant Church in Chengdu, China. His tribulations definitely have brought attention of the whole world to his church and the gospel. I don't even know that I would have known about the gospel necessarily in Chengdu were it not for his imprisonment. We need to pray for Pastor Wang Yi and the ruling elder that's been arrested and imprisoned with him. Pastor Yi was uh, sentenced just uh, two weeks ago to nine years in prison. Let me say this by application, two things. Number one, please be sensitive to the needs of those who are persecuted. Don't forget them in prayer. Um, If you are not aware, there is an email you can sign up for called Voice of the Martyrs. You can go to their website, sign up and get their email. Um, Here is uh, the email they sent out this past week. And you could read about a a Christian person. Pastor in Nigeria who was kidnapped by Boko Haram. And you can read in that same uh, one about another uh, pastor, uh, Mukum Kirad, who, along with two members of his church, um, were arrested for a gathering of worship on December 10th. You can also in that same read about the suppression of the church in a part of Ukraine uh, as well. So this will help you um, to be informed. You know, as I mentioned in the prayer, we have to remember as the body of Christ, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. That we are connected. And if one part of the body is suffering, that the whole of the body is to suffer along with it. You know, when you stub your toe, your brain goes into action. Your hands go into action. You don't, you don't just necessarily just ignore what just happened. You know, your mouth says, ouch. Your, your hand reaches down and, and comforts the toe. Uh, you know, and your brain says, hey, put some ice on that. You know, um, the, the whole body goes into action. And we need to be sensitive to that. Number two, by way of application, be watchful and prepared for the possibility, especially if the Lord should withhold revival and reformation in our own culture and circumstances, that the evangelical church be watchful and prepared that we may find ourselves under a new persecution in this country. Especially now, as some view evangelicals as an obstacle to their own ends. Now, I'll say more about that here in the third point. Verse 18 and 19, my final point here. Those who persevere through persecution, Jesus says, shall enter into eternal life. Look at verse 18. Yet not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. What is Jesus saying here? I don't think Jesus is saying, even though there's going to be persecution, you guys are safe. I mean, we know that's not the answer, because why? Luke tells us that James, the brother of John, is executed in the book of Acts. So how then do we interpret when Jesus says, not a hair of yours shall perish? 
under this persecution. What Jesus is saying is the same thing, I think, is what the Apostle John says in Revelation chapter two, when John says this, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. What John is saying and what I argue here that Jesus is likewise saying is this. He is not promising absolutely that none of them will die. That is not what not a hair from your head shall perish means. What he is saying is that if you under that persecution, even if it be unto death, you will not perish. You will still have everlasting life. Your body still will be raised from the dead. Don't fear those, Jesus said, who can harm the body and after they've killed you can do no more. Fear him who can destroy the body and the soul in hell. So that if you'll persevere and testify unto Jesus, even unto death, Jesus will see to it that you will be raised from the dead in glory. Listen to what John says in Revelation. He tells the uh, church there in chapter two, the church in Smyrna. He says this. Remember, this is a church that's being persecuted uh, and, and he says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. He says, be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. I think that's exactly what Jesus is saying here in the Gospels. I don't think there's any disharmony between the Gospels and the Revelation. I think it's the same idea. The promise is not that the disciples will not be martyred. It's not that none of them will be martyred. We know in Acts 12, one of them is martyred, but rather that they'll have life and that even if they die, they will live and they will be infinite gainers in Jesus Christ. Christ will raise the dead and we will be raised in Christ. Christ endured the worst persecution that ever a man had to endure. No man was ever so innocent as Jesus and yet so shamefully condemned by Jews and Greeks and Gentiles alike. Now, here I want to say this. By application, and that is we need to be aware that the Lord may call some of us to follow after him. We don't know. I suppose that few of us have thought much about the prospect that we might end up at the end of our life being martyred for the sake of Jesus Christ. But we need to think about this because things could look very differently for the church in two or three decades or even less. I bet few of us have ever considered that it could possibly be that our children or grandchildren might have, might have to testify unto Christ with their own blood. We, we tend to think here in America, the land of the home of the brave, land of the free, that all will be well. But we have an obligation as a church, I think, to think theologically and talk soberly about this. I'm reading a book, and I may mispronounce the author's name. I, I don't know that I know how to pronounce it. Nassim Nicholas Talib has written a New York Times bestseller called The Black Swan. Now, this is not a book by an evangelical, but it still has common grace insights. And he talks about the impact of the highly improbable where he explains that it is often unexpected events that no one can predict that lead to the things being the way they are. You know, he gives the example, the famous example of a turkey. And the turkey, you know, let's say he writes a journal and 
every day in his journal for the first thousand entries, he says, hey, the man came out and brought me a lot of food and I ate the food and I was happy. And then on the thousand and first journal uh, entry, what should have been the thousandth and first, the man comes out and grabs me on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. There's sudden turn here in the story. And, you know, and I, I give that it's kind of humorous, but it does make the point that we don't know, as we saw last Sunday afternoon from Proverbs chapter 27, we don't know what tomorrow may bring. Things can change rapidly. As I just mentioned, reading the last line about the alone years of Winston Spencer Churchill in the 1930s, warning England that things were changing rapidly in Germany and they didn't want to hear it. They didn't they didn't want to believe it. We in this country, our, our own former president in 2008 campaigned that he was in favor of traditional marriage. And yet, what do we find? The White House was celebrating homosexual marriages by his second term with a rainbow over the White House. And now those who view what President Obama said was his view formally, we who still maintain that view are looked upon with antipathy in many places now. What's changed? It wasn't us. It wasn't the Bible. There are ominous signs that our culture is becoming intolerant to the church's views. Even the little sisters of the poor had to sue the government because the health care coverage forced them to include abortions as part of their coverage, which went against their conscience. And there were those who wanted to say to the little sisters of the poor, the heck with your conscience. There are, there are forces in this country who are actively engaged in a war against your worldview. And don't care about your conscience. And if the, in, if the culture turns further against Jesus Christ, it will turn further against the people of Jesus Christ. And you and I are going to have to endure. We're going to have to resolve not to compromise with the world and its idolatry. And, and you know what the world's going to do. They're going to try and do it by halves. They're going to try and, and skim us off. Little by little, separating professing Christians from one another. Just enough of a compromise to get some of them peeled off and then get more peeled off and get more peeled off. Until we lose our freedom and maybe our families, our own lives. But hey, we've got to resolve that we will be faithful unto the end. Even if we lose our freedom, even if we lose our families, our children, our own lives. Jesus is our Alpha and our Omega, and we're not compromising with anyone, anyhow, anywhere, anytime, by the grace of God. And I'm not saying that like Peter, oh, I'll never desert you. I'm saying that in the reliance on God's grace. But that's got to be our resolve. I don't trust in myself. I'm as weak or weaker than Peter. But we have to at least be willing to say, Lord, give us the grace, please, to endure to the end. We have a promise that not a hair from our head will fall apart from the will of God. And we who endure to the end are going to find a crown of righteousness awaiting for us. 
we ought to pray that the Lord give us grace to be faithful no matter what comes to pass. We don't know. Jesus does know. We don't live in pre-AD 70. We don't live in the days of the Reformation. We live in the early 21st century here. We don't know what the world will look like by the end of the 21st century. But whatever it looks like, let Covenant Presbyterian Church humbly walk before the Lord and be faithful to the Lord. Let, let Jesus say to you, to this church, well done, my good and faithful servant. Amen.